Hey, Scale Up listeners, it is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another week, another episode of the show. So today we are going to get into a pretty important topic. In fact, I would say it is a crucial topic, and that is leadership. Now, we're not going to talk about leadership in the generic sense. I want to look at it through a different lens, and that is the lens of psychology. Now, I have always had a fascination, a curiosity with leadership. In fact, I was on the board of the Institute of Leadership and Management for a few years. And it was there that I thought, you know what? Leadership is one of the most misunderstood things in not just business, but in life. And I want to talk about it through both of those different perspectives today, because we talk a lot about business leadership and what does it mean to be a great business leader. But the other side of that is also, what's it like to be a leader of yourself, right? When you start to look at things through the, through the lens of personal leadership, and both are important. And if I reflect back on my own journey and some of the businesses that I've scaled, it's absolutely been about how I've led in the trenches, so to speak, but it's also been about how I have led myself and how I've had to manage my own state in those situations, particularly when it gets uncomfortable, particularly when you have to make tough decisions. So joining me on the show today to talk about this is world expert on leadership, Jeremy Snape. Now, you might be thinking, I've heard the name Jeremy Snape before. Where have I heard that name? Well, listen, if you're living in the United Kingdom and you are a fan of cricket, you might remember that Jeremy Snape is a very, very famous, I think very famous, he would say more humbly, not so famous, English cricketer. In fact, he played international cricket for England from 2001 to 2007. But since then, and we are going to talk about some of the stories from those cricket days, don't you worry. But since then, he's moved more into the world of business performance, performance around leadership, and has worked with some amazing companies all over the globe around improving their leadership capability. But he's also worked with some pretty famous sporting teams as well, helping them improve their leadership. When we ask great questions and we listen to what's been said and what's not been said and all the body language that sits around it, we really get a feel for what's going on and what some of the blockers and barriers are. And I guess the skill of a great coach is to ask such great questions like a Swiss army knife. There's so many different styles of question. So just to give you a couple of examples, he's been a performance coach for the South African cricket team. He's also worked with Shane Warne with the Rashidun Royals in the Indian Premier League. And he's also supported Alan Pardew at Crystal Palace, which is a a Premier League or was a Premier League uh, football team. In fact, I think it still is. Um, For my friends over the pond, you will call them a soccer team. But either way, they are right up there in terms of the Premier League in football. The medals are won on the podium, but they're actually won in training. It always frustrates me to hear the commentators saying, oh, this swimmer, she's so talented, you know, and I think, well, hang on a minute, she's physically gifted, but she's got up at four o'clock every morning and swum round the district pretty much before every other school kid, you know, got up. So we're going to get into the topic of psychology of leadership, as I said, but we're also going to get into the topic of what you can learn on the field of sport and how that can be applied both in business and in life. A fun conversation, uh, maybe more than anything else because I'm an Australian and Jeremy's from England and there's a a rivalry called the Ashes 
that happens every every now and then. So we, we have a bit of fun with that as well. But sit back, relax, enjoy the show. If you're a geek around leadership like I am, you are going to get a lot out of this episode. Hey, everyone. It's Nick here. Welcome to Scale Up for this week. Today, I am delighted to say I have on the show a bit of sporting royalty. He's laughing now, but there we go. Um, because we're going to get into the parallels between the world of sport, how that aligns to business leadership, and we're going to talk a lot today about mindset, particularly a winning mindset, and what you can learn from the world of sport and how you can apply that to business. So welcome to the show, Jeremy Snape. Welcome. Great to be with you. Hi, everyone. There we go. I said sporting royalty. Is that is that a fair assumption or not? <laughs> it's not a fair assumption, no. But for anyone li living in the world that don't follow cricket, I was the Lionel Messi of cricket. To those people who do know cricket, then you'll know that I wasn't. Absolutely. That's quite funny. I often say sometimes that in, in certain rooms, I'm really famous, but they're very small rooms. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but in, in all seriousness, you played you played cricket for England, right? And And had a career in that. Just talk to us about what that was like. And then, of course, I want to kind of talk about how you transition from that, obviously, into the world of business. Yeah, absolutely. I was very lucky, you know, as a youngster getting picked for the local Staffordshire team where I grew up. Um, and, and you get sort of caught onto that conveyor belt where you're in the under 11s, you're in the under 13s. I got picked for the England under 15s as captain, signed as a pro at 16. So you sort of get, you know, pulled along in this blur. And as you get older, you keep progressing. Um, but I suppose that the real step ups for me were when I started to play top level county cricket in the UK and, and play in, you know, Lord's finals with 25, 26,000 people live on TV. They were amazing moments. And I was very fortunate to be in some teams that won eight and nine trophies during that time. So great experiences with teams. But Apart from those flickers of genius in my 19-year career, <laughs> there, there were some great moments of uh, despair and shame as well. And, and probably the most powerful moment was um, I'd played for England and got man of the match on my debut in, in Zimbabwe. And then the next tour was to India. And everyone listening will know that India absolutely loves cricket. So we were in the first game and there were 120,000 people at this stadium called Eden Gardens in Calcutta. It's one of the biggest sporting stadiums in the world. It's like a religion there, isn't it? It's a like I, I've been to Sri Lanka and places like that. And, and in that part of the world, it's it's just it's almost like it's the only sport that matters. Yeah, absolutely. So so I, I was in this game and, and, you know, we were all talking about our strategy. We're going to play like this. We're going to bowl like this. It's all going to be fine. And of course, we hadn't spoken about the biggest danger, which was the voice in our head. Um, so, so I or I the food. Yeah, I, I no, heard no, so no. <laughs> on, on this particular occasion, the food was fine. Delhi belly. We we're in Calcutta, so I was safe. Um, but um, yeah, I, I sort of went out to bat, and we were trying to knock off these runs. And England needed a hero to step into the breach. Uh, and in the cacophony of noise, uh, I ran out Freddie Flintoff, who was our star player, and I was left in this huge stadium with everyone screaming and, and sort of jeering. And I just thought, what have you done? You know, you've ruined the game. You're never going to play for England again. You're going to get sacked. Your wife's going to leave you. The, the end of the world is coming. And, and I wasn't I was more worried about what the media were going to say the next day after that mistake than watching the next ball. So that was counterproductive. I missed the next ball and I was following my teammate back to the pavilion well, on, on the next ball. Literally, yeah. you were out next yeah. ball. Yeah. And I remember thinking, 
who did that? What was that? It was this emotional hijack moment where my I just wasn't prepared for the out-of-body experience of all the pressure. And that just made me fascinated about how our brain works. And, and it's fine having a clear strategy and a game plan, you know, and all the entrepreneurs listening will know what it's like. You walk into a room to deliver a keynote speech or a, a pitch or whatever to investors. And the stakes are very, very different in that room than when you were practicing in, in your kitchen at home. So I, I did a master's degree in sports psychology because I w really wanted to understand what was going on. Fortunately, I actually did it while I was still playing and I got a chance to use some of these strategies in a final a few years later, which I did hit the winning runs and got carried off and sprayed. Well, let's let's unpack this, right? I like to um, I like to go deep into certain areas, sure. when, particularly when the story is interesting. So. So just to be clear here, so when you say you ran out Freddie Flintoff, right? Like, we'll just go a little bit deeper. What actually happened in so, that moment? So basically, I hit the ball out to the boundary, and it yeah. was it was there was put it this way: there was enough time for me to get two shuttles in. That you know, for non cricket people, I had to yeah. run there and back. I did that. My teammate was a bit bigger than me, slightly longer turning circle. Uh, and the fielder threw the ball to his end and the wicketkeeper. <laughs> so that's clearly his fault, right? No, I'm I get it. I get, I get the situation. Noise, but, but basically, he was our star player. And now I was the sort of newer player to the team that had made a costly error with our iconic player. And, and that negative voice in my head was way louder than 120,000 people screaming. That, so that can't be the first time, though. I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, you, you've got to the pinnacle of playing for England in an international game. But to get to that, you know, people don't sometimes respect the journey to something like that is challenging in its own right. You must have oh, come yeah. up with different things where like you, you must have been thinking what I'm getting at here is you must have been thinking about this mental aspect beforehand, right? And gone through various situations. Yeah, I think you do learn, but but you gradually climbing a staircase and, and it feels like the consequences are much bigger each rung yeah. that you go up. So I guess it just felt, you know, like this was judgment day. You know, the world's media were scrutinizing every move. You know, there's cameras from every angle looking at your foot position and whatever else. And and yeah, I just I think I was just completely irrational and emotional rather than being uh, considered and, and um, you know, playing to my strength. So, Did you so win the game? Point, no, Did we lost win? that England game. And what uh, happened after? Did you get like, did the media come along and, 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 you know, like most things, we make things worse in our heads than how they oh, are sometimes perceived. Well, you weren't like, they grabbed you straight away and said that was your fault. It wasn't. No, but in my head, that's what would have happened. And and I was more <laughs> worried about that consequence than watching the ball, as I said. So no, it, it actually wasn't that bad. And, and we were reasonably mediocre, so I could have hidden with it, but I guess, the point is there's there's always an opportunity to say, oh, it was the way the ball bounced or the way or somebody was in the stadium waving and I got distracted or there was a noise or whatever. Or I thought it was going to be this. And those, you know, tricky spin bowlers have always got a bit of a plan. So you could blame it on their brilliance. But actually, deep down, I knew that I'd beaten myself. And that was almost the biggest sin. You know, I would never have an issue with being outskilled by an opponent if I was focused and confident and about to deliver my skill. That's what combat's all about. But but actually, I'd beaten myself before the ball even came down. And that that's unforgivable, really. So I was just amazed that we spent so long talking about the perfect strategy, but we rarely spoke about you know, getting in our own way and what we were going to do when negative self-talk and pressure and emotion got in the way, because those are the life skills that we all need, whatever, you know, industry we're in. 
And and you you said then that you went off and obviously studied this to a high level. What's your um, recollection now, looking back, now that you understand what was going on to you at that point? Well, it comes back to what a lot of your guests have said previously about staying in the moment and staying present. You know, you you have no impact over what's gone on two minutes before. You have no control or, or impact over what's going to go on in the newspapers tomorrow. The only thing that I can control is my thinking, my breathing, my balance in this moment. And that's what's critical in these split seconds. So what I actually developed after I'd done my master's degree was some breathing and, and pre-shot routines that helped me in this moment where I was playing county cricket live on television, a famous Pakistani bowler running into bowl. My team needed four to win. The pressure was all on me. I was having a few little flashbacks, but I managed to not focus on the outcome and the scoreboard and the result and the consequence of failure. I focused on myself, my posture, my breathing, my strengths. So I knew that if I stood up straight and tried to hit the ball as hard as I could straight back past the bowler, that that's my strongest position. As the bowler was running up to bowl this 90 miles an hour delivery, I was actually focused on my breathing. How bizarre is that? But what that did was take my sort of, you know, worried brain away from the puzzle of what might happen in this very fast paced equation and actually just got me to be very instinctive. And in that moment, my muscle memory kicked in. I knew exactly what to do because I'd hit a thousand balls like this in the previous weeks. And I clipped the ball away to the boundary for four. It's one of the best shots I ever played. I don't remember playing it, but I watched it back on video. And then, you know, my teammates engulfed me and I thought, that's it. That's the zone. That's that thing that we should Love all it. be striving for. Well, let's get it's practical. Letting, letting go of it in a way. Well, let's get practical for a second, because these these skills that I think a lot of things get honed on the sporting field, because as you said, the intensity of the moment is big, right? You know, particularly if you're in a crowd of that many people. But the same pressure can exist if I'm pitching for a few million dollars for my, you know, series a round of my business or i'm going to sell my company and i'm doing a management presentation and i'm going to be you know presenting to one of the biggest private equity firms in the world the same thing can happen so what can we learn from this practically for people listening so what is it that you know going to that situation now if you had to go and face let's say you know a, a board and present or the same thing on the point what would you do in preparation and what would you do in the moment well, it's a great question. I think part of your confidence is your preparedness. So I think mm -hmm. it's it's been incredibly well prepared, both in the delivery of your presentation. So being able to pause at the right points, ask questions, build that rapport. So that's definitely part of that delivery. Um, leading up to the day, you'd probably be thinking about what if scenarios. So what if I get in there and this hour long meeting is actually cut to half an hour or 20 minutes. I've had that when I'm doing a keynote, yep, for example. And it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing because you've prepared diligently, but now the, the context has changed. You've got to work out which bits you're going to cut short. So I think this simulation of, of uncertainty and, and novelty, we don't want new things slapping us in the face and having an emotional reaction. What we want is a considered response because we've started to scenario plan against some of these things that could happen. What happens if the time's cut? What happens if this key person is dialing in rather than in the room? Those kind of things in a pitch scenario. How do I want this person to feel? What do I want them to take away? You know, am I going to be open to questions? What if I don't know the answer to a question? Am I going to blag it or am I going to say, I don't know the answer, but I'll come straight back to you? You know, there's all these different scenarios, but I think 
the people who embrace pressure and the teams that embrace pressure the best are the ones that make it part of the equation and they understand that it could be their biggest derailer. We never spoke about that crowd of 120,000 people. And it was only a few years later that when I saw one of our, you know, iconic players, Darren Goff, and we had a couple of beers and I was saying, how was that crowd in India? 120,000. He said, yeah, I didn't sleep the night before either. But I thought it was only me that was nervous, you know, so it, it, it escalates and catastrophizes in our mind. So I think normalizing that when we go into these high stakes moments and performances, that pressure is a real rival that we've got to try and combat and mitigate against. I think that's a starting point, really. And then try and deliver brilliant basics. You know, you're not going to deliver your very best pitch ever in this high stakes moment. But if you can get the basics done brilliantly, that's a really good starting point. Seems yeah. more in some in some cases, it's it's making sure that you get to a certain standard. You know, yeah. if perfection is unrealistic, you know, get to something which is going to get the outcome or the result. And what do you think about? I mean, and I'm sure, certainly over the years since you have kind of gone through your sporting career into what you're doing now, there's been an increase of this understanding of the mental game, right? And you see people who just seem to be absolute masters of it, the Federers, some of the golfing guys, you know, those sort of things. What's the latest thinking on this stuff if you've still studied it in terms of um, not just preparing for the scenarios and the outcomes? Is there breath work that people do? Are there other, I suppose, habits that people are forming to be able to kind of, I suppose, be as prepared to deliver in the moment as they possibly can? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think what we're surrounded by is the media talking about the emotion and the outcome and the head to head and the prize money and the history. So we see all these montages of these, you know, mm, massive yeah. iconic players and the no one's won here for 20 years and all this sort of really emotive outcomes. But the players have to create a very different mindset. They have to dial that down to one out of 10 and they have to dial their process mindset up to nine out of 10. So a process mm. kind of mindset would be allowing them to stay in control in the moment. So, for example, a golfer, um, you know, walking down the fairway to play a really critical shot will sort of imagine that there's a hula hoop around the ball of a meter diameter and they won't step into that space until they're 100 percent clear on the wind direction, the club, the shape of their shot, where they want the ball to land. And it's when they've done that strategy and that doubt and sort of dialing up their commitment to it that they won't leave a vacuum in their thinking because that's when the negative thoughts come in. Then they'll start to use self-talk. So it might be, uh, you know, if they were talking out loud, it might be left, right, left, right, big breath, strong shoulders, you know, swing and through. So that's the kind of thing that would be going through the head. It's almost like giving a yapping dog a bone. You're trying to give your brain something. Instead of worrying about the scoreboard and the prize money and the fact you messed up the last shot, you want to give the dog a bone and sort of keep that quiet, that processing part of your brain. And by using these breathing mechanisms or these counting techniques or this self-talk, what you're actually doing is blocking that out so that you can play with this freedom and this natural instinctive nature that you've done all of the time when you've been in preparation so one of the challenges we see with moderate performers is they're brilliant in practice and terrible under pressure and that's because they've never built any of these 
you know, strategies to block out the pressure when and when it comes in, it, it's it's really um, that's, you know, yeah, that is fascinating. You just reminded me actually of something, Jeremy. Years ago, I jumped out of a plane crazy as i am i actually did um instead of most people when they do a skydive they do a um a sort of tandem first but i decided to do a solo and i remember standing on the side of the plane which is just mental if you've never done it and they the, before we did it they made us do this this kind of rehearsed set of actions if you've ever done this where basically we had to tap our foot on this we're outside the plane remember holding onto the side everything you know the plane's flying in the air you tap your foot a number of times then you had to hit your hand and do something else and then do some reverse count and then literally just jump off mm-hmm. and, and it reminds me of the same thing here because in that moment there's a lot of emotion right you're standing out the side of a plane and all you're thinking about is i just have to do these this set of routine this action which allows me not to think about the enormity of the moment and then once that's done, the only thing I need to think about is letting go and jumping off. So it's a similar type of Absolutely. thing. You're trying to block that moment of decision-making that could, if you're being emotional, you'd say, oh my God, this door's yeah. open and you know, know. I'm hanging out. What am I about <laughs> to do? But but those kind of blockers actually allow you to follow a, a sequence. So I'm, I, you know, we, we see in sport the highlights, you know, that the bowler runs in, the batsman hits the ball or the pitcher throws the ball and, you know, the bat- batsman hits the home run or whatever. Um, that's the highlights. But the bit I'm interested in is the lowlights. What goes on between deliveries? What goes on as the tennis players going to the back of the court to fetch the ball and, you know, receive the next ball before? Because it's those 10 seconds where the point is won, not just the execution of the skill. And and that's really critical in ramping up that commitment and focus. I get it. And you work, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you work with some pretty large organizations on this stuff. Um, when you're going into work with a leadership team and you're kind of unpacking this for them, but more importantly, uh, helping them start to put in place various practices that they can use to be better and, and perform better in the workplace, what are some of the things you recommend? Well, I've been very lucky. You mentioned my playing career. After I did my master's degree, I started to coach some of the world's elite sports teams. So Premier League soccer teams, England rugby, international cricket. And that gave me access to some incredible leaders. So what I wanted to do through my consultancy Sporting Edge is video interview them and almost create a video library that we could then use those insights. And it's gone a bit beyond sport. So it's got Harvard professors and neuroscientists and, uh, you know, military leaders. So ultimately what I do when I'm consulting with top 100s is I'll show them what their challenge looks like in the Royal Marines or Cirque du Soleil or the Royal Ballet or the All Blacks. All right. Okay. And they get a chance to listen to the leaders of those organizations. So you can imagine I'm not sure that a Harvard professor, a ballerina and the All Blacks captain feature anywhere else in combination apart from through Sporting Edge. But, you know, I'll show those different insights about how they lead and manage through uncertainty, for example. And just the language and the frameworks and the perspective give a really authentic and honest viewpoint that really stimulate fresh thinking for leaders. So. I wouldn't say that I go in there as the all knowing one saying this is how you have to do it, because I think it's about, you know, the teams themselves actually building some solutions. But what I've got access to is this incredible stimulus that I can use to get people thinking differently. And I think when the future is unknowable, as as it is at the moment, you know, we, we lose confidence, we lose focus. And I guess my job is to show that your brain is naturally going to respond in that way. It wants to be safe. It doesn't want to be uncertain. So we try and go back into our comfort zone. 
but actually our most fulfilling and moments of great pride or when we've done something that we didn't think we could achieve and we've done it with diverse people that we didn't think we could work with. So there's a really interesting sort of tension there. And when we start learning from these high performers that have actually delivered in those kind of contexts, we start to see the stepping stones of how they built it. And that's, you know, it gives me great pleasure. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's the, there's a couple of things there. There's the, there's the modeling of performance through others. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and what I heard you say there is not necessarily copying it, but taking it and making it part of what, how you would approach that same kind of thing. And I suppose within that, there's the patterns, the patterns of performance. So, so do you see, I mean, if you've obviously had, um, the experience of interviewing and being around such top performers, what are some of those patterns that are consistent across? It doesn't matter if it's ballet, sport, business. What are some of those things you say, you know what, the real top performers have these characteristics? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, there's definitely some kind of ability to vision what they want in Technicolor. They can see yeah. it in 3D. Vivid vision, as they call it. Yeah. So really clear, no ambiguity. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And again, this is brilliant for entrepreneurs listening, that you can imagine the Formula One drivers, that they can almost embrace every sense in their body to, to replicate what it's like to go around a particular track, and they can do it within a split second mm. of the actual time. So their ability to visualize what success looks like and what it's going to feel like is incredibly powerful. There's also a really interesting mix of motivational drivers. You know, there is the definite pull of fame, fortune, being number one, winning, finance, whatever it might be, all of those positive extrinsic motivators. But there's also those negative proving people wrong, you know, not wanting to fail, that imposter syndrome that's in a lot of them. So so that's that's a powerful cocktail. And then I think there's that ability to be purpose driven as well. That sustains success for a long period of time. Is that does that mean um, being out of your own ego to some extent? So there's a bigger there's a bigger why behind what you're doing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I was very lucky to work with the South African cricket team for a period, and they they were trying to get to number one in the world for the test ranking, and they brought in new coaches and got fitter, and they got some incredible talented players that that could get them there for sure. And this this goal of being number one was incredibly powerful until they got there. And then they fell away because actually they sort of satisfied everyone else's, you know, doubts about whether they could do it or not. And they they, um, they achieved it. And I suppose that selfless collaborative energy that was being put in to make the team incredibly special was then reversed into, well, now we're really famous. Now everyone's writing about us. What can I take out of this for my brand or my website? Um, and you lose a little bit of that sustained motivation. So we actually found a couple of things there that created an emotional competitive advantage over a longer period. One was the identity of the team. So previously they were known as the Springboks. And when Nelson Mandela was released from the um, the prison, there was no cricket during the apartheid era. He, he kept the Springboks as the rugby team, but every other team got called the Protea. So we had to almost reconnect them what with this badge that they were kissing. So um, I did a bit of botany uh, study <laughs> and found that the, the protea starts its life cycle with a bushfire on Table Mountain um, and that it's the most resilient seed and it's the first to adapt in this new scorched earth. So we brought that into the performance arena when we inducted a new player. 
the protea village elders if you like the senior team they around a campfire wherever they were in the world they started to induct the new new entrant the new player coming in the debutante and they talked about their resilience and adaptability uh, oh, wow, and how that's cool. be, yeah so so the cap was handed over over the fire in the same way that the protea in its natural life cycle started so now when they were kissing the badge you know they knew what it meant and it felt wow. like an so that's like a pro i mean talk about influencing belief yeah and, and so therefore conviction and confidence yeah. yeah absolutely rituals you yeah. know and it's funny how those things are, are again transferable into the world of business like sure. you see you see businesses that create great cultures not apathetic kind of made up cultures like you know words on a wall i'm talking about ones where values actually drive a behavior which drives a performance 100 percent. and and i, I think one that. of the challenges with a lot of the clients i work with they'll say we need to be have more integrity be more collaborative and be more agile and people don't really know we know roughly what those definitions mean but they don't know what they look like in behaviors yeah so one of the things we can do with our digital toolkit is say well this is what Cirque du Soleil think agility means this is what a Formula One pit crew think agility means this is what a best-selling author thinks it means and those stories and reference points aren't necessarily right for that pharmaceutical business or that you know financial services company but they give you a reference point to say well that's not quite us we're more like this and then you hear the behaviors. And, and when we start to tell stories and articulate what agility means for us, um, then we start to live into that and we start to celebrate those kind of behaviors about fast decision making, collaboration, no red tape. And what that then does is it builds this reputation. And our, our story that was originally a word became a story. Then it becomes a set of rituals and behaviors that people can see then it becomes an outcome that we are faster and more agile. And then it becomes our reputation. And, you know, that's how it gets transformed. So I think as humans, we learn so, you know, powerfully from stories. And, and that's why they can be so transformational, both for personal identity, but also at organizational level. Yeah, fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit. Um, I just want to segue a little bit into, into leadership here, but also kind of coming back uh, to mindset as well. When you look at someone who is a high performer versus the best of all time, right? And I'm thinking here of like the Michael Jordans, people, they call them the goats as, as you know, the greatest of all time. And you sometimes hear stories true or true or, or probably partially true of them not being great people, individuals, harsh. And there's certainly, you know, some people say to be the best in the world at something you see have to be almost obsessed. What's your thought on that in terms of, like, is that true? Um, or is there a different way of approaching that? Well, I think it's a real challenge to define that when you're talking about such elite performers. But I think it goes without saying that to be so exceptional at something, you've almost got to say no to a lot of other things. Yeah. So, so that obsession is definitely there. It's almost like they don't want to be successful they have to be successful. It's just part of their DNA. So that um, hunger and that drive, that insatiable appetite to keep improving is critical. We interviewed AP McCoy, the champion jockey, who was the champion jockey for 20 years in a row. And uh, we asked him, what motivates you to keep going? You know, he's broken pretty much every bone in his body. And he says, you know, some mornings I wake up, bolt upright and think someone's going to beat me today. And he gets up out of bed and you know, he's a, you know, incredibly financially secure. Um, he's been the champion jockey for years, but it's that 
insecurity or fear of being beaten, actually, that was the motivation. And then I think it's some people want to just redefine their sport. I was very lucky to be close friends and and work alongside Shane Warne for, for many years. We sadly lost him last year, but what an incredible game change, you know, for him. And he was a, he was a performer. He was like Freddie Mercury, you know, he was an incredible athlete. He mastered the most complicated skill and that whole bravado that went with it. He absolutely loved it, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I think, Probably the the common similarity, apart from that fierce drive, is the willingness to reinvent yourself time after time after time. And I think although we see somebody who is, a, a, you know, a 20 year iconic performer, if they've been at the top for 10 to 15 years, what we're probably seeing is 10 different athletes, because bear in mind that. Every stadium that they play in, there's 360 degree cameras, not to mention everyone who's got a mobile phone and is a, an expert from their armchair. Everyone's taking apart their technique or why that serve or why that three iron was brilliant or bad. The media, you know, amplify this noise. So the opposition get footage of every, you know, delivery or every tactical change that they're making. So there's so much transparency around performance. There's no hiding place. So now your world-class opponents in another NBA team are stopping your strengths and exposing your Achilles heel every day. So by definition, you are not a static performer that just relies on your talent until you get too old to fall off the conveyor belt at age 35. You have to reinvent yourself day after day after day. And again, I don't think that's, I don't think people appreciate that but again, I think that parallel as an entrepreneur to see the gap, to morph yourself into a shape of business that can exploit the gap and then try and stay in it for as long as you can be up before you have to re-engineer yourself and go again. I'm sure lots of your listeners will be able to relate to that, but that's definitely what the- I like that thought of um, it's a different identity. I hadn't actually thought of it in that way, but I, I do follow a lot of basketball and people like Kobe Bryant and those guys who were the best of their generation. Sometimes you sure. can argue the best that's ever been, but you're right. There was a constant level of reinvention and not, not always necessarily working on weaknesses, but understanding how to win you know, versus all sorts of different odds or challenges. Yeah, the question kind of, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And, yeah. and, and showing up differently that people expect, yeah. but you know, do you think to be a top performer at anything, do you have to be a great leader? Um, well, I guess it's personal leadership, isn't it? That, you mm. know, they, they often say that, um, you know, the, the medals are won in the, uh, on the podium, but, but they're or collected on the podium, but they're actually won in training. So if you're not going to do the discipline on those cold, frosty mornings when you've got to get up at six o'clock and go swimming or whatever it is, it always frustrates me to hear the commentator saying, oh, this swimmer, she's so talented, you know, and I think, well, hang on a minute. She's, you know, physically gifted, but she's got up at four o'clock every morning and swum round the district pretty much before every other school kid, you know, got up. Um, that's discipline, that's focus, that's that relentless hunger to keep improving. And yes, there's a natural ability, but it's tenacity more than anything else that I think we need. So especially at the moment in times of uncertainty, I think we need that tenacity and bordering obsession. I, I don't like the word obsession because it suggests there's, we're out of you know balance. 
uh, with the rest of our lives and our families and loved ones and things. But there's definitely that hunger to keep improving and, yeah. and people won't let it go for sure. And I agree with you on, on the word obsession, because I think there, there are seasons where like maybe being obsessed is the right thing, meaning that hundred percent of your focus has to go into a certain thing, but it's a season. It's not necessarily the whole game, but it is interesting that some people think that you have to be that way to, to, to win, right? There's no other, other way around it, but, um, the best leaders I've ever worked with, certainly from a business context have had a much more balanced view of the picture. I, I often say they operate at 30,000 feet quite a lot of the time, but they can also be granular when it's important to be, but they have a perspective, right? And that makes a big difference. So what I'd like to just talk about before we finish up here today is again, back to, back to leadership and back to mindset. If you're coaching a business leader and you are trying to think about their performance, let's say it's a large corporate, they've got a lot of pressure on them and you're trying to guide them on certain habits or certain ways of making sure that they can manage their emotional state to also be you know, performing at a high level. How do you approach that? And I appreciate the question is different for every person, but are there some similarities and things like that that are just, again, typical when you're in that environment? Yeah, I think I definitely appreciate the, the context because having played international sport, I know the scrutiny. I've worked with a lot of Premier League soccer managers. I understand that sort of binary judgment every week, whether they're hero or villain. So I understand yeah. the stakes are high. And I guess what you're trying to do is almost be like a performance detective. You're trying to understand the clues. What makes this person successful? What are their signature strengths? And again, one of the things that we see under pressure is that we move away from our strengths and start doing things that we've never done before mm, because we're yeah. panicking. Almost like when you lose your keys at home and you start looking in drawers you haven't even been in for you know, a, a few months. <laughs> so we've got to go back to the things we know and the strengths that we've got. So I think it's trying to build rapport and, and listen. That's the key thing because when we ask great questions and we listen to what's been said and what's not been said, and all the body language that sits around it, we really get a feel for what's going on and what some of the blockers and barriers are. And I guess the skill of a great coach is to ask such great questions, like a Swiss army knife, there's so many different styles of question that you can help that person to find the answer for themselves rather than you having to tell them. And I think that's probably one of the key things with um, very senior leaders is that they want to have the answer, they want to be resourceful and do it themselves. They don't really want to be told what to do. So if you can leave enough clues and crumbs around for them to pick it up and go, oh, I've just had a brilliant idea. Why don't we do it like this? And I guess my style is to show more examples from other elite performers about how they've tackled it. And from that, you hope that the spark comes and that's where it's more sustainable, to... I, I would imagine, yeah. too, because you're right. When someone's already got to a, a certain level of success, Right. You know, there's a there's a bit here where if they're told all the time by others how to do it, they're going to not naturally lean into that. Right. Like I often say when I work with people, they have to be coachable. But what I mean by that is not not necessarily that, um, you know, I, I'm going to provide answers or, the, or ask, even ask all the right questions, but they have to be willing to be curious enough to explore what that means for them. I do like the approach of what you said about, you know, showing showing top performers that no one can argue our top performers and when you're working with a high performer as well they that's a resonating strategy i think because you know a lot of people like that want to be the next level right and i can certainly resonate as you were saying it 
Yeah, I think there's a balance. I mean, there's definitely inspiration and, and insight that can come from the ballet or the All Blacks or whatever it might be, because those people have been in that, you know, spotlight, just like you in that moment. But I also think that there's the ability to go back in your own timeline, because, yes, it's inspirational to hear what Kobe Bryant would have done. But, you know, I'm not six foot four and, you know, an incredible athlete. So what I need to do is think, well, when was I adaptable? When was I at my most competitive? What skills did I use and what strengths did I use? Because that is very grounded. It's almost that bank account of evidence that we've got that becomes a great resource for us when we start to doubt ourselves. So I think it's probably using both of those polar extremes. One is people that I've never met that I can be inspired by but also the evidence of what I've achieved in the mm. past can be incredibly liberating for people. Because again, when we're under pressure, we forget what we've already achieved. You know, what? why are you proud of your team over the last, you know, you've got a big challenge coming up in the next month. Everyone's losing their confidence. Let's go back six months and say, when we did that pitch or we did that piece of work, how good were we? What strengths did we all use? What we need to do is bring those strengths again and apply them to this context it's not brand new. We're just, you know, stepping up that staircase. Working, and going, working the muscle that you've already had yeah, before. You yeah. just reminded me, actually, um, I had a guest on the show who actually, I think the episode's coming out shortly, a guy called uh, Dr. John Martini, And um, he talked about this, and he's a world-renowned human behavior expert. And he sort of said that when you feel annoyed by someone or equally intimidated by someone, quite often you are looking in the mirror of traits that you have. Right. So if we take the positive side of that for a second, that let's say I see someone who's an exceptional leader or an exceptional something else, you know, you, you have those things, you just haven't really connected them yet. Because if you didn't have those things, you wouldn't notice them. And it's a really interesting thought around, and he's a polymath who's studied all sorts of craziness. But when you think about it like that, and I've, and I've thought about that since, it's actually quite true. There are certain things that I admire in someone that I actually have, but I'm just not confident enough of connecting the dots of that level of ability or experience. So. Yeah, I think you've got to find your own authentic way of behaving, haven't you? There's no point trying to be, you know, a massive inspirational speaker if you're, um, you know, an introverted person. So so I think what you've got to do is say this person is able to connect with people on the stage. But actually, my style is making really strong relationships one to one with people. And then when I stand up on stage and say something fairly bland, because I've got incredible relationships with those people one to one, they'll all follow me. But the other person might not need so much one-to-one. -one. They can do the big broadcast speech and get everyone running out of the hall. So there's lots of different ways to do it. And I think it's just about having that self-discovery. I think that curiosity is fascinating to learn about ourselves, get some feedback and advice and keep developing because we can all improve at what we're doing. And I think that's the exciting part of it. Excellent. Well, awesome having you on the show today, Jeremy. What's um, what's exciting for you coming up in the future? What are you working on? Well, lots more interviews for my own podcast, Inside the Mind of Champions and our digital platform, and lots of keynote speaking around Europe and the world. So really excited to do so. I know you do lots of traveling. So yeah, I enjoy traveling and getting out to meet our clients. So uh, and it's the Ashes cricket season coming it up. Is. So lots it to, is. Lots you are talking out. to an Australian here. I'm sure you worked that out. But I've I've lived in the UK now for 21 years. So there you go. But but I still follow Australia. There you yeah. go. Ashes and the Rugby <laughs> World Cup as well. So it's a great, great. It team. is a big one. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the the show today, Jeremy. I think you know the discussion around 
mindset and particularly how people can deal with situations and, and learn to kind of adapt, particularly under pressure. It's such an applicable thing and such a skill to understand in the world of business relationships, obviously the world of sport. Uh, so I just want to thank you on behalf of, uh, of my listeners for coming on the show. Great. Thanks very much. Great to, great to see you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.